really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome once again to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby. As always, I'm your host. My name is David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum for now. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast. You can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So there was actually a ton of action this weekend. So why don't we get started. So as always, we start with our current updates. And you know what? It's been several weeks since I kind of went on and on about my son playing baseball. So guess what? Yep, it's back. So (laughs) the last couple of springs. So my son, he's been playing Little League. He's been quite good, as you all know, uh, even making their little all-star team this past season. Based on that, we signed him up for Summer League and Holy cow, it has been a trial. So in the spring, the rules are kind of, if it was a video game, they'd be set to absolute beginner level. So for instance, you you can get out, but they still go through the entire battering, batting order for each team. So everyone gets a chance to hit each inning. Um, the coach does all the pitching, so there's a, a reasonable chance the ball will be hittable. Um, they don't really keep track of balls or strikes, just all sorts of things like that. But in the summer, however, it's completely different. First of all, they have the kids do the pitching. This means you never have any idea where it's going to go. Will it be right down the middle? Will it be nine feet to the right? Will it hit me in the head? Uh, They they count balls and strikes and you can strike out, but you can't walk. Uh, If you can get on base, you can steal on any passed ball, which of course is almost every single pitch. Um, You only get three outs. Basically, it's, it's full on baseball with a few minor tweaks. And all of this would be fine, right? Except They don't have even one practice and nobody actually explains any of this to the kids or us for that matter. They just throw them in to start playing games. So again, I understand the need to make it harder and get their skill levels up. That's great. But they needed at least one evening where they could just explain what's going to be different than what they were used to. You know, long story short, my son went from getting a hit every single at bat to not getting even one hit over the first three or four games this summer. It was massively disheartening for him. So if somebody had just explained, hey, this is going to be much, much tougher and all of you will end up striking out like it just would have been so much easier on him and us. In any event, the good news is he finally settled in. He just got his first ever double. This included sliding into second base, which he's been dying to do, and then stealing third, which he's also been dying to do. He instantly found his spark again. The whole thing finally feels fun, so it's all good, even though this is the last week. So, you know, we got there eventually. He's stupid! He's stupid! People have to know! Well, eyes of the news is coming from Cardiff, so the likelihood that it's good, I don't know, seems pretty low. Um, Quoting here from Rugby Pass, though, quote, Cardiff chairman Alan Jones has penned an open letter to Cardiff supporters less than 24 hours after it was confirmed that Dai Young has left his director of rugby position. The ex-Wales prop was suspended last April after he was accused of bullying members of staff, a claim that he has categorically, uh, categorically denied. An independent investigation found insufficient evidence to support the bullying allegations made against Young, but the coach decided on Monday it was best to step away from the club. A statement released at the time read, quote, unfortunately, this process has caused strain 
strain on the working relationship between Cardiff Rugby and Die Young in the circumstances. Regrettably, it has been mutually agreed by the parties to terminate Die's employment contract in accordance with terms within that uh, within that allow for early termination, unquote. This media release has now been followed on Tuesday by Jones delivering his perspective on what unfolded at the Welsh club in recent times. The chairman began his letter by thanking supporters for their patience regarding a process where legal matters meant that Cardiff were unable to make any rugby-related announcements these past few months. Quote, First of all, I'd like to thank you for your patience, understanding, and support during what has been one of the most challenging periods in the club's long history. I fully accept that most supporters will have felt frustrated by the lack of communication from the club during this period, but our hands have been tied both in relation uh, to our discussions with the WRU and then with regard to the position with Dai Young. As I'm sure most of you will appreciate, there is not a lot more I can say in relation to the latter other than what was released in the press announcement. What I can say is that the board responded to concerns raised in an appropriate fashion and that the subsequent process was carried out in a fully independent, professional, and thorough manner. It was unfortunate that this took far longer than anticipated, but this was due to circumstances beyond our control. It is regrettable that the club and Die have parted company, but we are now focused on the future and ensuring we can uh, we move forward during what continues to be a challenging time for the professional game in Wales. For legal reasons, we were unable to make any rugby-related announcements during the investigation, but we are now in a position to confirm a number of signings and re-signings. We can also resume work on recruitment and retention, albeit with the reduced budgets arising from the new agreement with the WRU. You can expect a uh, expect plenty of announcements on this in the coming days. The above constraints aside, we recognize that our communication with you needs to improve, and we have agreed to a revised communications framework, which will be implemented immediately. This includes a recommitment to communications from myself, our CEO, Richard Holland, and biannual Q&As with board members. Our immediate priority now is, of course, on securing and implementing a succession plan for rugby, and once this is in place, we can really begin building for the future. It is important to acknowledge the fact that next season, is going to be incredibly challenging on the pitch. But the most important thing is we as a club are here. We are secure. We have a foundation to build from. Growing from within will be a significant part of our strategy going forward. And we are fortunate to boast a superb player pathway. It is vitally important now that we harness its full potential as well as further develop the relationship with the rags. I don't know what he means by that. I even asked Will Owen and he doesn't know either. It is also now four months since we lost our lifetime president, Peter Thomas, CBE. And this has had an enormous impact on the club. All the best, Cardiff. I really hope it goes better than we all think it's going to go. Okay, moving on to our thoughts of the week. And my thoughts this week are about these, you know, screwy pools that we're getting in the upcoming Rugby World Cup. A lot of people have been complaining about this for a long time now. I recently found this article hoping to sort of placate people a bit, I guess. Um, Quote, World Rugby has acknowledged the pools for the upcoming Rugby World Cup are not as balanced as they could be and have expressed their intention to address this for the 2027 uh, tournament in Australia. The pools were drawn on December 9th, 2020, and a lot has changed since that date. The top 12 teams from across the globe had automatically qualified by finishing in the top three of their pools in the 2019 World Rugby World Cup and were then split into three bands. Band one was comprised of the top four ranked sides in the world at the time, South Africa, New Zealand, England, and Wales. Woo! was a while ago. Band two was comprised of the next best four, Ireland, Australia, France, and Japan. Wow. 
Band three was comprised of the best teams to miss the quarterfinals in 2019. That's Scotland, Argentina, Fiji, and Italy. Each band was randomly split into the four pools along with the qualifiers who were yet to be established. This method ensured the top four ranked sides at the time were separated at the pool stages. But fast forward to the present day and two nations from band two currently occupy the top seeding in the world rankings. This has left the top four ranked teams in world rugby who would consequently be considered the favorites for the tournament, likely facing each other in the quarterfinals. Quote, the reason why the pool draws were made early was because of a surety of the host cities and the hosts, knowing where the teams are going, which is very important, obviously, for a tournament. World Rugby Chairman Sir Bill Beaumont told the breakdown. Oh, I forgot to do the voice. Uh, but uh, looking at look, what we've been looking at is doing is having the, the pool draw as late as possible so that you can get more consistency around the balance in the pool. Sorry, I'll, I'll stop now. Um, there's always going to be one pool that is tougher than the others. I speak from experience of cheering a host country that didn't get beyond the quarterfinals in 2015, so I know exactly what it's like to be sitting around that table and looking at a pool draw. We'll be looking to see how late, when we go to Australia, that we can make the pool draw. No further details have been confirmed on how late that pool draw will be made. But as Sir Bill Beaumont mentioned, I like to call him Sir Bill, uh, organized host cities as well as fan experiences require the decisions be made sometime in advance. You know. Uh, that, that's the end of that quote. Um, regular listeners will know, of course, I go to Rugby Pass for a lot of content. And so I obviously really appreciate all that work they do. But man, the amount of editing we have to do to make their articles like grammatically correct and actually read like sentences, it's astonishing. I, th I think I might need a new source. Okay, that little sound tells you it's time for our reviews for the week, and we're going to start in the boringly named Rugby Championship. We began the weekend with one of my all-time favorite matchups in world rugby, although it's been admittedly lopsided for like 20-odd years. Uh, it was, of course, the Wallabies taking on the All Blacks, this time from Melbourne Cricket Ground. Incredibly, Australian uh, Australia had a winning record against the Kiwis in this particular venue, having won two of the three meetings over the years. So New Zealand were coming in looking to right that ship, put away the BNRC trophy, and secure the Bledisloe for another year all in one fell swoop. In the lead-up, you know, I'd heard that it'd be a borderline full house with a crowd of 80,000 expected, though one Australian pundit I was listening to speculated 50,000 of them would be Kiwis. But at the, at the start of the broadcast, if, if that wasn't true, the production team did a great job of making it look like it was heavily in favor of the home team. And I wondered if that would change if the ABs, you know, started to find that incredible momentum that they've sort of found over the first two rounds. Either way, it was a great spectacle. The shiniest mullet in the Southern Hemisphere was on display right at the opening as Carter Gordon got his first ever start for the Wallabies wearing the 10 jersey. Lots of interesting selections overall in this one, i got to say. Uh, the comms intoned, quote, well, the occasion is here. There are test matches, and then there are test matches, unquote. And I was properly fired, fired up for this one. Only three minutes in, it was Scott Barrett putting a shot on Tate McDermott that was so brutal, McDermott's entire family fell over spontaneously, leading to an opportunistic try from Shannon Frizzell, who has been absolutely on fire recently. He's really found his best form to date. Frizzell, of course, if he played like American football, whenever they mentioned him, uh, they would say, say what you will about Shannon Frizzell, but he's a heck of a player, which is code for he may or may not have killed someone, but we've decided we don't care. Uh, just in case you don't know why people are, let's say, cagey when they discuss Frizzell, 
Uh, two years ago, he allegedly beat up a woman at a nightclub, then sucker punched her boyfriend before icing that particular cake with dire threatening text messages, I think to both of them. Uh, despite, uh, despite the court finding these things to all be true, as far as I understand it, he was allowed to complete what they called a police diversion, which spared him an actual conviction, and New Zealand Rugby decided he should only be suspended for two games afterwards. It was disgusting, it was reprehensible in pretty much every imaginable way. So, everyone all at once, say what you will about him, he's a really good rugby player. Ugh. Anyway, the Wallabies, they answered in short order, it was actually really odd where they, they essentially had the TMO look at two separate possible groundings before deciding the first one had struck pay dirt. Never seen that before. And suddenly, Australia found themselves in the lead seven to five. Some incredible heads up de uh, defense from Will Skelton and then from Marika Corambete gave them possession once again. Were the Aussies building some momentum, I wrote? Uh, no, no, they weren't. Discipline, however, would become a, a major problem again, with Corambete angrily sitting in the sin bin for being what the comms called a mile offside. Uh, New Zealand mauled their way into retake the lead as we ticked towards halftime. It was 12 to 7 at that point. More bad news before the break as Alan Alalatoa went down with what looked like a nasty na uh, ankle injury in between the yellow card and now an injury to the captain. Things looked increasingly tough for Eddie Jones' squad. Sure enough, just 21 phases later, it was Will Jordan getting yet another try to cap off a terrible 10 minutes for the Wallabies, giving the visitors the lead at the intermission 7-19. to And by the way, that makes 23 tries in 23 tests for Will Jordan. That guy has got some serious magic. So things went from bad to worse pretty much in the second half with Al Alatoa's replacement, Taniela Tupo, also going down with an injury, followed by yet another yellow card. It was then it was Caleb Clark making them all pay. At the three-quarter mark, it was 7-26, to 26, and within minutes, it was Mark Talea on the other side to pad the lead, followed by Rico Ioane getting in on the action just two minutes later, a cavalcade of catastrophes for the hapless Aussies. At full time, it was 7-38, to 38, New Zealand retaining possession of the Bledisloe for the 21st straight year and turning next Saturday into a dead rubber, I guess, for the contest in Dunedin. Buckle in for the vitriolic chat about Eddie Jones this week. It's going to be fast and furious. Next up, and to officially conclude this year's BNRC, we were off to Joburg for Springboks versus Pumas at the top. They did a really cool sort of just time-lapse shot of the stadium filling up. It was it was pretty awesome. I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. Um, they also featured a lovely youth choir. I'm, I mean, I got to say, one thing the BNRC does right is the pomp and the ceremony. The pre-match festivities are just always a ton of fun, especially with the, the welcome to country ceremonies. I love it. So the box tapped Dwayne Vermeulen to ca be captain again, but it was Eben Etzebeth leading the squad with his 112th cap. What a career for that monster. So a frightening opening to this contest with Grant Williams on his first start, getting smashed to the ground and clearly just knocked out cold on the opening kickoff. Just an awful sight. You, you can always instantly tell something has gone terribly wrong. Got a feel for the guy. He would appear on the bench later on as an observer, so I imagine that had to be a positive sign. So. The first 10 minutes were all Argentina. They looked solid under the high ball, incredibly powerful at the breakdown. They were dominating territory and possession as Carreras slotted two in short order to give Los Pumas a six-point lead, but Labaki, he got another sort of an easy one soon after that, and it looked like we were in for a nice close one. I was a bit worried about how the Pumas' depth might hold up compared to the endless parade of monster people that the box have back in their bench, but we'd have to find out. So speaking of Etzebeth, 
just before the second quarter of play, he brushed off a would-be defender to smash down his fifth career international try in the first of the match. And the home side grabbed their first lead. It was 8-6, to six, and it took them no time at all to drive over for another. I'd been worried about Argentina capitulating maybe around 50 or 60 minutes, but it was starting to look like that number would be more like 30. Um, with the Springboks on another promising drive, the penalty count showed six consecutive for the visitors. It appeared it might be slipping away early. Oh my word, though the 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 outright brutality of this matchup. It was like it was like watching State of Origin or something. Like as we had our second instant knockout of the evening. This time it was Lucas Palos. He was the unlucky recipient this time. Second time we'd seen a player immobilized and put on the plank to be carted off the field. Damn, this sport can be rough. 15 to 9 was your easily divisible by three score headed into the emergency room. Uh, I mean, lockers. Uh, just before the 50 minute mark, Carreras missed for the first time. But with a score not moving in either direction, Los Pumas seemed to sort of gather steam and grow in confidence on the attack. Unfortunately for them, every time they got close, it was, it was a little knock on or yet another turnover by Steven Kitsoff spoiling their ambitions. But as we entered the final quarter of play, it was still a six point game, and I was rooting hard for the visitors. Um, Little quick side note here. I'm keenly aware of how damn good the the Springboks are, and if you missed some of the linkups between, you know, they're they're where the wild things are, creatures like R.G. Snyman and Malcolm Marks. I mean, the skill on display is world class all the way. That being said, they're such easy villains and seem set on encouraging people to hate them with their just their constant shithousing, constant carping at the refs and everyone else who will listen, just complaining and complaining. You know. And plus there's the whole, you know, majority of their history. So while I always enjoy watching them, I also enjoy rooting against them at least as much. Anyway, back to the action. It was Carreras missing another one, an ominous omen for sure. Another quick side note, the backup scrum half for Argentina, he, he just doesn't look equipped to play at this level. Like his quickest ball isn't quick and his passes all tend to sort of float, sort of slowly through the air, begging the opposition to pick them off and setting up his teammates for crushing hits at the same time. I mean, if they went on to lose, I wouldn't say, oh, that was his fault. On the other hand, I think winning will be a lot harder if he is your nine. So at the 66-minute mark, uh, Argentina were again faced with the decision of a kick or the corner, and after the two consecutive uncharacteristic misses, they eschewed the three and went for the kill, but it backfired to the tune of Lebac getting a breakaway try. His first at test level, I was shocked to hear, uh, to potentially put this one to bed. With exactly 10 minutes remaining, it was 22 to 9, and I wrote game over in the old notebook. So a yellow card, though, against the host, breathed, uh, well, uh, a breath of life into Los Pumas. Mateo Carreras nabbed his third test try and his first ever against the Springboks, and his team were still down two scores with less than five minutes to go. They would add one more score, but it was past 80 minutes, and the scoreboard would make things look a lot more favorable than they actually were. South Africa winning 22-21 to 21 by the very end, and the BNRC was in the books for another year. Okay, swinging over to the Farrah Palmer Cup. On Friday, it was the Tasman women versus the North Harbor Hibiscus. That got round three started for us. On a bit of a quiet note, the comms practically whispering, come on, people, this isn't a, f a funeral or golf or something. Let's wake up a bit. In any event, Harbor got on the board first, extended their lead to 14 before the half hour mark, and then went up nil to 21 headed into the break. Tasman were showing occasional signs of brilliance, but invariably just kind of lost it in contact or knocked it on. They just kept getting in their own way and seemed hard pressed to put many phases together. 
they finally got some points around the 50 minute mark then got some more just minutes later were we in for a dramatic comeback with maybe 10 minutes left they scored again but one missed conversion saw them still down two points it was 19 to 21 in the closing moments and then holy cow with the clock in the red the home side scored a beauty out wide to steal a win from what looked like a hopeless cause. Just amazing. Each team shutting out the other for a full half. The Tasman women coming all the way back to win 26 to 21. What a start to the round. Oh my gosh. So Canterbury women were up against the Bay of Plenty Volcanics next. They mentioned right, at the, uh, right up front, Canterbury had just gotten back, oh my God, 10 players from the black ferns from the pack four series so they would be loaded with black ferns while bay of plenty were getting back just four players so you know turning around their little two game losing streak it's gonna be on the tough side sure enough canterbury came out and scored two unanswered tries in the first half hour but the volcanics they hit back taking advantage of a yellow card against their hosts and it was 14 to 7 through halftime and just past the 50 minute mark in fact that was when canterbury found their mojo scoring two in quick succession then another soon after that and time was running out for any kind of upset an insult to injury try for the canterbury women at the death put a nice bow on this one the volcanics suffering three consecutive defeats this year to start off the season it was 42 to 12 at the end Hawks Bay Tui versus Waikato women, I believe was our last Friday fixture. Waikato were first to score, though it took them a good 25 minutes to do so. Hawks Bay, though, they had an answer, and we were not at seven at the break. It was an absolutely beautiful day for a game, that is for sure, with just the, the mountains lining the backdrop and soft, jagged peaks, just enough clouds to make the light just right. When we came back from the break, it was the home team grabbing the first points of the second half. Waikato, they... they Looked a little flummoxed for long stretches in this one, but headed towards the final five minutes, they finally got a second try to go back up. The hosts had one last shot, and it looked promising before Waikato turned them over with the clock reading 82 minutes, 10 to 14 remained your score at the end. Manawatu Cyclones versus Northland Women was our first Saturday offering. And since I've sort of declared my allegiance this season with the Manawatu Turbos, I think I should also back the Cyclones. It seems to make a, some sort of sense, right? So. A very timid sounding person on comms told us this was a number one versus number two matchup in the competition. Uh, but if you if you were watching, you probably wouldn't have concluded that during the first half. Uh, Northland, they found a bit of an edge as things wore on, leading 6 to 16 after 40 minutes had elapsed. But before the half actually finished, it was the Cyclones getting the first try and making a game of it 13 to 16 as they went to the sheds. There would be no scoring in the third quarter, but things got exciting soon afterwards. The team's uh, trading scores to make it 20, uh, 20 to 21 with just a quarter hour to go. And then 10 minutes later, they'd traded seven pointers. But then it was an absolutely magical breakaway from Eleanor Plum King to grab the first lead of the day from Manawatu. Maya Davis, the 17-year-old high schooler coming in as a replacement scrum half, she was awesome. She put in some incredible kicks to help with this turnaround. Northam looked to be tightening up to me. Um, they had a promising drive grow going, but on a crucial kick, failed to find touch, and it was Cyclone's ball with the lead and under a half minute to go. But somehow, Northland, they, they had yet another shot, but ruthless defense right on the Manawatu goal line thwarted their final efforts at the double whistle. It was 34 to 28. Incredible match, this one. Then, Wellington Pride versus County's Monacau Hea. That closed out the third round of the FPC action this week. I've got to say, the facilities they've got at Wellington, it, I mean, it's an awesome venue. It must be amazing 
to be just to be there as a player and spectator both just a, a thing of beauty quote there's an urgency and an accuracy about the Semenikau team, unquote, said the comms as they scored the first try of the evening. Just about five minutes in, this one quickly became a really good match. The lead seesawing back several uh, back and forth several times. We found ourselves at 15 to 19 a few minutes before halftime. The golden light of the setting sun just casting long, long shadows. And that's where it would stay going into the intermission. Wellington seemed to kind of freeze up in the second half, just not scoring at all as we passed the three-quarter mark. Counties Monaco looking comfortable, 15-34, to 34, but a yellow card against the visitors gave the Pride a chance to gain some ground. It was a two-score game with a quarter hour left in the third round. Counties Monaco would go on to run away with this one, though. You, you, you blinked, and suddenly it was 20-46. to 46. That was only with two and a half minutes left. They even added another one after that to win by a mile. It was 20 to 53 to close out the weekend. So, after the three rounds, only four teams have actually played three games, those being Waikato Women, Canterbury Women, Wellington Pride, and the Bay of Plenty of Volcanics. Waikato thus topped the table in the Premiership, being 3-0, while Canterbury are 2-1, and and the Volcanics remain winless. Of the remaining teams, all of whom have played two matches in the Premiership, Counties Monaco are 2-0, Auckland and Hawks Bay are 1-1, in the championship division, Manawatu and Otago are 2-0. Northland and Tasman women are 1-1. And, and North Harbour Hibiscus and the Taranaki women are 0-2. Taranaki with zero points this year. Along uh, just along with the snakebit Bay of Plenty. It's, it's not good at the bottom of either of these tables, but what a competition. Okay, we also had some men's internationals this weekend. And of course, I was perhaps way overexcited for Scotland versus Italy. You know, as someone who supports Scotland, it was disappointing to see the sparse crowd in attendance at what I've decided to call Noxious Gas Murrayfield. The comms were already in troll mode saying, quote, well, one of these Scottish players said, we're not going to the World Cup to finish in second place. And he might be right, as they may well see the exit after the pools, unquote. I mean, back off, dude. So on a roll, they went on to say, can Scotland bring home the bacon without hog? I mean, I was looking for things to throw at my screen right then. But anyway. Like soft things, because I, I definitely can't afford to damage this laptop. Anyway, there was a weird vibe about this game in general. Like the the few people I know in Scotland, I don't think we're going. It it just it wasn't just the selections, like the players were in it like it was a friendly or a reunion school thing. It was it was kind of meh. I, I was of course psyched for Darge to be given the captaincy, but you know, the team was just kind of like, Yeah, this isn't really a thing. And I don't know. I think it was a mistake by Gregor. Maybe I'm just looking for things to find fault with him. I'm not sure. But anyway, 12 minutes in, the comms said, Ben Healy finds loads of space, and into that space goes Darcy Graham. And Scotland were on the board. They really keyed off Healy's boot for the large part of the first half, at least. He's been an absolute coup d'etat in his short time since betraying Patricia Vieira and all of Munster fandom. However, it was, it was a bit of a mess in the pouring rain. And it was the visitors taking a one-point lead by the minimum possible measure. The whole affair just had a deflated feel to it. Gotta say, I, I had a hard time actually paying full attention to this one. There was just something kind of eh about it. And I have to say, neither of these teams looked near the level I watched earlier in the boringly named Rugby Championship. Ball was just so slow. They, they looked stuck in molasses on both sides and in all phases. I mean, maybe it was a combination of the rain, the less than full crowd, the alternative selections for both teams. It it honestly seemed like someone, like nobody was like taking it 
seriously. And in my defense, by the way, I listened to, to the rugby podcast from BD, uh, BBC Radio Scotland this morning, and even they described this game as, quote, rubbish, unquote. So I didn't imagine it or anything. In any case, I, I kind of ran out of stuff to say. So just to wrap it up, Italy did lead, as I said, but Scotland eventually squeaked back to a, a small advantage of their own. Right at the end, Josh Bayless got to try to put it away, and that's how things would conclude. It was 25 to 13 at Noxious Gas Murrayfield. Okay, elsewhere, we had Manu Samoa versus Fiji, and sadly, this one wasn't available where I am. Pretty, really pretty bummed about that one. Of course, I looked it up. I found a little blurb uh, describing the action. Um, I, apologies in advance if, if I'm about to absolutely massacre a bunch of names here, but, quote, Fiji made it two from two in 2023 after defeating Manu Samoa 33-19 to in their second Pacific Nations Cup clash on Saturday in Apia as they continue to build towards Rugby World Cup 2023. Hooker Tavita Akanavere uh, dotted down on either side of center Iosefo Masi's 14-minute, uh, 14th minute try with winger Celestino Ravotomada adding a fourth as the Fijians romped to a 30-5 to lead. Fly half Caleb Muntz adding two conversions and two penalties. Christian Leofano's unconverted try was Samoa's only points of the first half as they struggled to contain the Fijians. Samoa were able to cut the deficit in the second half thanks to tries from winger Tamua Manu and captain Fritz Lee, but in the end. Fiji did enough in the opening half to secure the 33-19 victory, unquote, and phew. So Japan versus Tonga, Namibia versus an Argentina, uh, Argentina, Argentina, Argentina 15, and Uruguay versus Chile also happened this weekend, but none of them were available for me either, he said, complaining a lot. So Japan did go on to defeat Tonga. It was 21-16. Oh, thank God. I didn't get to see a really close match between two awesome nations. Thanks. Anyway, Namibia lost to the Argentinian 15 by a converted try. It was 27-34. And to wrap up the men's internationals for this month, Uruguay just managed to eke out a one-point win over Chile. It was 26 to 25. I can't believe these fixtures weren't available. Get it together, people. Come on. Well, by the music. You'll know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award, and this week the award goes to Darcy Graham. Mr. Graham, I'm amazed you haven't been featured here before, as you've been on an incredible tear for at least a year now, though you've had a, a few injury struggles, I suppose. You have been a menace at club level, of course, but you've also been an absolute weapon for Scotland. Your two tries this weekend were by far the highlights of an underwhelming contest. Your reckless enthusiasm inspires teammates and fans alike. Your elusiveness, combined with your nose for being in the right place at the right time, has proven a lethal combination, and I can't wait to see you again representing your country in September. Darcy Graham, congratulations to you, for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award winner. Well done, sir. Okay, that of course brings us to our updates and previews. This week, we're officially back to having a butt-ton of rugby on offer. The NPC kicks back into action. The FPC keeps rolling. There are more international clashes as well. 
I do find it a little odd that the uh, boringly named rugby championship is officially over, but next week, Argentina play, play the Springboks and New Zealand host the Wallabies, as if it's still going. Anyway, there you have it. So, uh, among other uh, international clashes in the Southern Hemisphere, we've got Manu Samoa taking on Tonga. Oh, man, I hope I can see that one. And then meanwhile, in a different hemisphere, I'll let you work out which one, we'll have Scotland welcoming France, Wales will be taking on England, and Ireland will be hosting Italy. Now, real quick, uh, for those of you who only listen to the show just to be like, <laughs> stupid American, yeah, I've, I've, I've said a, a pretty dumb thing several weeks in a row now. Um, the FPC, of course, is going into round four, and it's got the Auckland Storm versus Bay of Plenty Volcanics, and then... The next one is Waikato Women versus Counties Monaco Heat. They're called the Heat at least twice on this show. I've said Counties Monaco Heia because that's how it's appeared on the screen because the T got cut off. I, you know, you, you've got the Hawks Bay Tui. I thought Counties Monaco Heia might be something else. Yeah, so those of you who are just hoping to make fun of me for being dumb, Here's your chance. It will be Waikato Women taking on Counties Monaco Heat, a name I will never forget now. And then Northland Women will be facing the Otago Spirit, Wellington Pride versus Hawks Bay Tui, North Harbor Hibiscus versus Manawatu Cyclones Go Cyclones. Of course, the NPC also kicks off for 2023, so I am totally psyched. Round one features Tasman versus Otago. Taranaki versus uh, Counties Monaco, Hawks Bay versus North Harbor, Manawatu versus Wellington, go Manawatu, go Turbos, Northland versus Canterbury, Bay of Plenty versus Auckland, and finally, Southland versus Waikato. I can't wait! Well, my friends, that does it for another week, and the rugby universe is about to get a lot busier, that's for sure. There are all the fixtures I just listed, plus we've got the WXV somewhere around the corner, my Eagles theoretically actually have matches on the horizon, and of course, just wait, we are less than six weeks away from what should be an unbelievable Rugby World Cup. Buckle up, everybody, a glorious fall is on the way. In the meantime, of course... To all of you across the globe, cheers, talk to you soon, and be well.